Hello, my name is Misha Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. Today's episode, we get more of Ted Bundy being a stupid bitch. The Ted Task Force investigation is heating up. Uh, Ted Bundy is baptized into the freaking Mormon church. He's presented with a court order for police lineup. He's calling people to, you know, figure out what's happening. Why are the police bothering my friends? He writes poetry in prison. (laughs) Which honestly, like, fuels my dopamine levels. But yeah, he's still just a dumb bitch. And we get more of that in this episode. There are no trigger warnings because he is not going to kill anyone. Thank fuck. Also, if you are for whatever reason hopping in right now to this episode, um, you should start from the beginning because there are over 10 full episodes of True Crime Aficionados available for you to binge right now. If you would like to follow me, see what's going on at True Crime Aficionados on the Instagram, head over to the Patreon. It's a party on the Patreon. Support your girl. This is a one black queer woman show, so please support me. And if you would like to stay in touch, you can send me an email at truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, buckle up because it's a wild ride from start to finish. Ted Bundy was fucked, period. Bob Keppel from Seattle, Washington, Mike Fisher from Aspen, Colorado, and Jerry Thompson from Salt Lake City, Utah, were noun in constant communication. They knew it was only, you know, a matter of time before everything fell into place and they could nail that stupid bitch, Ted Bundy, to the wall for his cross-country murders rampage. So, in addition to all of his gas receipts that placed him in Colorado, even though, you know, he claims to have never been to Colorado, he has no friends in Colorado. Okay, sure, Jan. Detectives found gas receipts from when Ted Bundy purchased gas near Vail, Colorado on March 15th, the day that Julie Cunningham disappeared. And again, on April 6th, detectives found receipts from when Ted Bundy purchased gas near Grand Junction, the date and place where Denise Oliverson was last seen. So Ted Bundy was just getting more fucked by the hour. Detectives checked his work records at the Washington State Department of Emergency Services and discovered that he had missed work both before and after the double abduction slash murder at Lake Sammamish State Park. So they're like digging into his past and it's just not looking good, sis. Additionally, Two witnesses who were at Lake Sammamish the day that Janice Ah and Denise Naslin disappeared and then were murdered positively identified Ted Bundy as the man they saw with Denise Naslin and Janice Ah before they disappeared and turned up dead. Furthermore, (laughs) two women who were approached by an injured man with his arm in a shitty fucking cast and remember was constantly like dropping books in front of the campus library at Ellensburg identified Ted Bundy as being that crusty hoe. In The Only Living Witness, Stephen Machat and Hugh Ainsworth Wright, Ted's employers at Pedline, the medical supply company, reported that he had access to a wide range of instruments and supplies. This could be, you know, the plaster of Paris that he used to make his shitty fake cast that he put on his arms and legs. And then, sorry, gross, horrible detail, but the speculum that was found inside that one victim who was attacked but survived like a few weeks before Linda Ann Healy was murdered. So he got like those supplies to make his fake casts and shit and like weapons from his job, bro. Like, what a fucker. Detective Keppel in Seattle was able to place Ted Bundy in Ellensburg the day that Susan Elaine Rancourt disappeared and when he abducted Kathy Parks from Oregon and like took her back to Seattle, like around that time he deposited checks and purchased gas that would have like covered that 500 mile round trip. 500 miles. Like, did he kill like a hitchhiker on the way? You know what I mean? Like, that's crazy as hell. 500 miles. But yet he was a law student. Get the fuck out of here. Detective Keppel told Hugh Ainsworth, every time we'd get more information, it was on how we couldn't eliminate him. Sure, we'd love to catch a suspect and charge his ass and put him in jail forever, but we were working for him too. We tried to eliminate that son of a bitch. (laughs) You can't do it. We knew where he ate where he slept, where he took his shits. <laughs> but you just couldn't tell where he was on the day those girls disappeared. 
hella fucking sus, my dude. Hella sus, my dude. Like, get the fuck out of here. So back in November of 1974, so the previous year, because we're now in like August, September of 75, Ted Bundy was introduced to the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, you know, the Mormons, whatever, because he's in Utah, so obviously. And he's also dating a Mormon, like Liz is supposedly Mormon. She's living a quite, quite YOLO lifestyle for a Mormon, but whatever, religion and all that jazz. (laughs) I'm not religious at all. Ted Bundy invited the Mormon missionaries to visit with him. He took like missionary discussions for two to three months. He attended like the LDS branch that was near the University of Utah and was like, I'm religious, I'm doing it y'all. Okay. He fell off the religion, but in August, 1975, when he was finally accused of high crimes, he conveniently, again, decided to become involved with the Mormon church. Ted Bundy said, Ted Bundy said in his psychological assessment, quote, I got tired of my own failures and wanted to adopt a more disciplined approach. I felt my lifestyle could be improved. I felt there was joy and warmth of fraternity within the church. It was a church of the people owned and operated by the people. Whatever. He was just trying to save that ass. He was like, if I'm religious, they won't think I'm doing crimes. It's like, nigga, you know how crime ridden the fucking church is? Also, Pope. Francis, is that who it is right now? Fuck you, bitch. Saying that people who are choosing to not have children are selfish. Suck my entire asshole. Yeah, because guess what? My cat Mimi is my child. And also I don't want to fucking procreate. The world is overpopulated and I'm trying to reduce my carbon footprint. And one of the easiest ways is to not have a child. So whatever, he's like a fucking Mormon now or pretending to be. And while being interviewed for The Only Living Witness by Stephen Mashad, Ted Bundy told the author that he joined the Mormon church because, quote, the pressures he was feeling by the police attention, the money problems, acrimony with Liz had deeply unsettled him. Joining the Mormon church offered a practical advantage. It wouldn't hurt as a suspect and possible defendant to belong to the most pervasive and powerful institution in the state of Utah. So he was like, I believe in Jesus which is not true. On October 1st, 1975, Jerry Thompson went to Ted Bundy's apartment to present this bitch with a court order to appear in a police lineup fucking finally. Detective Thompson was accompanied by Detective Beale and Detective Valentine. I think that's how you say his name. Sorry to this man. The two officers from Bountiful, Utah, who were investigating the disappearance of Deborah Kent, who vanished from Beaumont High School. The detectives had to knock twice before they received an answer. Ted Bundy answered the door. His hair was wet and he had a towel wrapped around his waist. He had just gotten out of the shower. What a fucking weird and inappropriate way to answer the door. Like, you're a grown-ass man showing up to your door literally naked except for a towel. Like... Put some clothes on. Here's the thing. I don't rush for anyone. I really don't. And if I'm in the shower and you're calling me or knocking on the door, boo, you're going to have to wait. I'm showering. I'm cleansing this bidet of the sins of the world. Like, there's too much happening. Like, it's me time. Leave me alone. (laughs) So whatever. He answers the door and Ted Bundy says, hi, Jerry. To what do I owe the honor of the visit? Fucking smarmy little punk using the detective's first name as if they're like old friends and he's not being investigated for a serial homicide. Like this is mental illness, you know, insane. So Ted Bundy invited the detectives into his house and Jerry Thompson said, I've got something here for you, Ted. Richard Larson writes, as Thompson extracted the document from his inner pocket, Bundy paled. The officers saw his heart pumping violently against the bare skin of his chest, thinking he might collapse. Detective Ballantine moved forward asking, are you all right? Yes, said Bundy, accepting the document. I'm fine. This bitch was either like pretending to almost pass out or was like dead ass about to faint in his little bath towel. Yeah, criminal mastermind, Ted Bundy. I wonder if they thought he was like pulling out a gun or something. I'm gonna get you. Because if my black ass answered the door, three cops are there and they're like, I got something for you, reaching in their pocket. I'm like, well, I guess it's time to be a hashtag now. <laughs> anyway, Ted Bundy glanced at the court paper, saw that it was in order to appear in a police lineup the next day and said, oh, is that all? And apparently he said this with like obvious relief. And then he said, sure, I'll be there. What's this all about? Like he's such an arrogant, pre-chewed dickhead. Like, 
What is this all about? The police show up to his house, hand him a court order to appear in a fucking police lineup the next day. And this psychopath's response was, is that all? Sure, I'll be there. As if he has a fucking choice. It's a court order, bitch. But then again, you know, the fucking caucasity of it all to even ask in the first place what it's all about as if he doesn't fucking know that he's a whole ass serial killer. Come on, Ted, get it together, buddy. Anyway, so Jerry Thompson patiently explained to this dumb bitch that it was a routine lineup where an eyewitness would examine the appearances of several men. Ted Bundy was apparently composed and pleasant as he assured the detectives that he would definitely be there. Oh yeah, yeah, line up for my appearance. No worries, no worries. I'm totally gonna be there. Don't you worry about a thing. As the detectives walked down the stairs and out of his apartment, Jerry Thompson said, hell, for a minute there, I thought he was gonna pass out. The other officers agreed. As soon as the detectives drove away, Ted Bundy got dressed, grabbed his wallet, his keys, and did the obvious normal thing that any innocent person would do. He got a fucking haircut, bro. Like, he got a fucking haircut. So when he was handed the court order to appear in the police lineup, his hair was like super thick, super bushy, and really similar to what he looked like back in November 1974 when he attacked Carol Durant, the person who would be identifying him at the lineup. And when he kept harassing that drama teacher at Beaumont High School, Raylene Shepard, who would also be at the lineup. This time, his hair was cut very short and he combed it to the opposite side and it like drastically changed his appearance. And again, a totally normal thing that a completely innocent person would do. Like, (laughs) criminal fucking mastermind, Ted Bundy. Okay, and so now, I will share with you a short excerpt from The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. And this is like the quintessential Ted Bundy bio. I'm pretty sure it's the first Ted Bundy bio, like the first comprehensive book about his life. And if you don't know, Anne Rule is a a true crime writer. I believe she used to be a former police officer. It came out in 1980. So right when Ted Bundy was about to go on trial for the Kimberly Leach and the Chai Omega murders. And Anne Rule used to work with Ted Bundy and she worked with him at the crisis clinic when Ted Bundy worked there. And like a lot of people on Reddit say that like Anne Rule over like estimates and exaggerates her relationship with Ted Bundy. But like she worked with him firsthand. She went to like parties with him and shit, like holiday parties for staff parties. Um, She was in contact with Liz at the time. So she uses the, the pseudonym Meg Anders in her book, but she's talking about Liz. And so, yeah, it's like the go-to book for Ted Bundy. Oh, there's, there's some gaps. Like she doesn't talk about the fact that he was a necrophiliac, which is weird because it was updated in 2010. So she could have definitely like included that in there. And like, that was a primary reason why he fucking killed people. You know what I mean? So it's just fucking weird that she doesn't include that. But anyway, I digress. So Anne Rule says, I had neither seen nor heard from Ted Bundy since the crisis clinic Christmas party in December, 1973. And then My phone rang on an afternoon in late September, 1975. So two years go by. It was Ted calling from Salt Lake City. I was surprised, but glad to hear his voice. I felt a sharp twinge of guilt when he began. Anne, you're one of the few people I can really trust in Seattle. Great. I remember turning his name in to Dick Reed in August of 1974 and wondered just how trustworthy he would find me if he knew that. But that had been a long time ago and I hadn't heard a word about him since. I wanted to ask him what he was doing in Salt Lake City, but he had something on his mind. Listen, you have contacts with the police. Could you find out why they're subpoenaing my law school records down here? A dozen thoughts raced through my mind. Why now? Why after 13 months? Was Ted being investigated because of what I had done so long before? Had I implicated him in something that apparently had him very concerned? I had never heard of Carol Durant, Melissa Smith, Laura, Amy, or Debbie Kent. I was completely unaware of the Utah investigation and it didn't seem possible that the task force would wait more than a year to follow up on a lead I had given. I answered slowly. Ted, I probably could find out, but I wouldn't do anything underhanded. I'd have to tell them who wanted to know. No problem, I'm just curious. Go ahead, go ahead and tell them that. <laughs> go ahead and tell them that Ted Bundy wants to know. Call me back, collect at, and there's actually a number in here. 
okay, I don't feel like dialing this. So if you do this, can you tell me what it is? Just DM me 801-531-7733. So he says, call me back, collect if you find out anything. I stared at the phone in my hand. I truly couldn't believe the conversation just finished. Ted had sounded exactly as he always had, cheerful and confident. I debated calling King County Police. I'd never interfered in their investigations and I hesitated now. I called the county's major crime unit and Kathy McChesney answered. I explained that Ted Bundy was an old friend of mine and that he had just called me requesting information about the subpoena. There was a long pause and the receiver was covered while she conferred with someone in the office. (laughs) Finally, she was back on the line. Tell him... Tell him that he's just one of 1,200 people being checked out, that it's just a routine inquiry. They were stalling. Not me, but Ted. I had been around police homicide units long enough to know that they wouldn't be requesting records from that many suspects, that definitely something was up. That something was definitely up. I didn't argue. Kathy was clearly uncomfortable. Okay, I'll tell him that. Subpoenas are not issued without probable cause. Obviously, something had happened, something big. I felt a chill. Not even a television script could make it believable that a crime writer could sign a contract to write a book about a killer and then have the suspect turn out to be her close friend. It wouldn't wash. So that's also why this book was like so fucking crazy because she was actively writing about the murders. And it turns out it was her fucking former coworker. You know what I mean? So like, obviously she was like, <laughs> cha-ching bitch. I called Ted back that night and waited as the phone rang six, seven, eight times. Finally, he answered panting. I had to run up the stairs. I was down on the front porch, he told me. I called them, I began, and they said to tell you that you're only one of about 1,200 guys they're checking out. Oh, okay, great. He didn't seem worried, but I wondered how somebody as sharp as Ted could believe that. If you have any more questions, they said you could just call them direct. Right. Ted, what's happening down there? Nothing much. Oh, I got picked up on a Mickey Mouse thing in August by the state patrol. They're claiming I had burglary tools in my car, but the charge won't stand up. What the fuck is a Mickey Mouse thing? What does that mean? Nothing much. I got picked up on a Mickey Mouse thing in August. They're claiming the charges won't stand up. Like, what is this fucking grifter, scammer ass bitch? Like, of course he was born the same year as fucking Donald Trump. These bitch ass bitches. Like, fucking boomer bitches. Anyway. Ted Bundy? With burglary tools? Impossible. But he continued. I think they have some kind of wild idea that I'm connected with some cases up in Washington. Do you remember something about some missing girls up there? Mama, like she's writing a whole book about it. You know what I mean? It's like, he's so dumb. Of course I remembered. I'd been living with it since January of 1974. He claimed to have almost no knowledge of the cases and he'd almost thrown away his last statement. It was as if he'd said he was wanted for a traffic violation in Washington. I didn't know what to say. I knew that whatever was coming down, it had to be based on more than my suggesting his name. I'm going to be in a lineup tomorrow, he said. (laughs) I'm going to be in a lineup tomorrow, he said. Everything's going to turn out all right. But if it doesn't, you'll be reading about me in the papers. Like, what's going on? What's going on? I'm going to be in a lineup tomorrow. And if it doesn't work out, you'll, you'll be seeing more of me, baby, in the press. You fucking weirdo. He wants to be cool so bad. He's such a fucking desperate, pathetic loser. Bitch. Transparent as hoe. <laughs> I couldn't understand how a lineup in Utah could have anything to do with the cases in Washington. He hadn't mentioned Carol DeRanch or the kidnapping case at all. If he was a suspect in Washington, he would be in a lineup in Seattle. The only people who could conceivably identify the Ted from Washington were the witnesses from Lake Sammamish. But something kept me from asking him more. Hey, thanks. I'll keep in touch, he said. And we said goodbye. (laughs) So yeah, Anne Rule had the fucking, probably one of the weirdest conversations of her fucking life with Ted Bundy. And yeah, if you have not read The Stranger Beside Me, it's a good read. My copy is cute. She's beat up. I kind of maybe want to read it again now that I've read like literally fucking 10 other books on Ted Bundy. But it is like the first, you know, like go-to book. And it's kind of badass because she like was a woman police officer, true crime writer at the time. Super, super prolific, like hella, hella true crime books. 
So yeah, go check out The Stranger Beside Me if you haven't, Avi. So even though Anne Rule says it was late September of that phone call, it was the 1st of October because Ted Bundy, when he spoke to her, he said, I have a lineup tomorrow, a police lineup. And the police lineup took place on October 2nd. So that would be the next day. So the next day, October 2nd, 1975, to prepare for his lineup, Ted Bundy did what anyone would do. He dressed in not one, but two sets of clothing. <laughs> One set of clothes was to wear to the Metropolitan Law Building and the other set was underneath it. His plan was to take off the outer layer of clothes like right before the lineup and then that way it would make him appear to look as different as possible for whatever reason from the rest of the men in the lineup. He thought that this like trickery and deceit would help to invalidate any sort of identification. However, he apparently like at the last moment lost his nerve and then left the second set of clothes like at his lawyer's office. He was like, ah, maybe not. Like his lawyer probably was like, listen, don't fucking do that, bro. Just show up in one set of clothes. Like, why do I have to tell you to do that? Can you imagine being Ted Bundy's lawyer? Actually, there is a book, Defending the Devil. It's so difficult to read, Jesus fucking Christ. It really is. We'll get into it. I have some qualms with this woman, but probably was not easy. So anyway, so Ted Bundy like went before a judge like very briefly, and then he was taken to a small room to wait for the lineup while his lawyer, John O'Connell, and his partner, Bruce Lubeck, they registered objection after objection to the proceedings of this police lineup, because of course. And it's crazy because they didn't even really know what to object because they didn't know which witnesses to what crimes would be at the lineup. So they were like, is this about, you know, the Carol Durant abduction attempt? Is this about some murder? Like they literally didn't know. They were just like, objection, objection. And they dead ass, like didn't even know what they were objecting. So wasting everyone's fucking time as men are wont to do, of course. In all, there were seven women who were gathered, but only three of them were actually witnesses. So the three women were Carol Durant, the woman who he attempted to fucking abduct and she got away. Raylan Shepard, who was the drama teacher at Beaumont High School, who Ted Bundy was like harassing and like trying to get her to go look at a car. And then Tamra Tingi, who was Deborah Kent's locker partner, who said that she saw a stranger at the Beaumont High School play. And they were like, could it have been Ted Bundy? So Jerry Thompson had apparently two reasons for bringing in like these extra witnesses. They were called ringers who were all like county employees because both Carol Durant and Raylan Shepard had expressed fear at the possibility of Ted Bundy or his attorneys recognizing them, which obviously like, especially Carol Durant, bro, like he dead ass tried to kid, he did kidnap her. She got away. He wouldn't try. It wasn't attempted kidnapping. He started driving her to a secondary location without her fucking consent. He kidnapped her. He tried to put a handcuff on her, you know? And he tried to fucking kill her. He tried to bash her in the head. So she was like, I'm afraid of him seeing me. Cause you know, what if, God forbid, this cishet white dude is believed that he didn't do anything and then he doesn't face any consequences. Hmm, when have we ever seen a situation like that happen? So yeah, they were afraid that this nigga was gonna get the fuck off and come for them. So they were like, no, we need to be protected. Well, Jerry Thompson was like, I need to protect them. So Jerry Thompson persuaded these women that they would be far less conspicuous in a crowded lineup theater. And also the law building press room was close by and he feared that some like up and coming reporter might recognize Carol Durant, who could like very easily become flustered because she was a teenager. So he wanted to make sure that like all the bases were covered. In The Only Living Witness by Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth, they have a really good description of the police lineup. It's really funny. So when Thompson first saw his suspect, Ted's altered appearance stunned him. When he came out with his new hairdo, said Thompson, that just blew my mind. Hastily, the jail inmates who had been selected to stand in the lineup with Ted were replaced with police officers. Now the detective had a fair liner, perhaps too fair. As the men were called to the stage, Thompson turned to the county attorney, David Yokom, Yakom, <laughs> who was seated beside him. Friend, he said to Yocom, we're in a world of shit. Bundy looks exactly like those guys. Our witnesses are going to pull out some of those police officers. Jerry Thompson was wrong again. 
The lineup took 20 minutes. Each of the eight men was asked to walk the length of the stage, turn right, left, and then backward and repeat three phrases read to them by the county attorney, uh, David Yonkom. In order, the phrases were, would you like to come to the station with me? Could you come outside and identify a car for me? It'll just take a minute. And finally, I'm a police officer. Your car has been broken into. Also, listen, if someone just says that they're like a cop or I don't know, like a service person, like a maintenance person or a doctor, don't fucking believe them. Double check. There is someone who lives in my current apartment building who is impersonating a whole ass doctor, bro. The mental illness is real. I'm a true crime researcher. Of course I looked this bitch up. Of course I looked who I'm living in a building with. I'm gonna make sure there's no Ted Bundy serial killers. This nigga might be fucking Norman Bates. Talks about a mom who I never see anymore. Whatever. Don't trust people. Don't trust people. <laughs> trust, trust no one and do your research and then maybe trust them. So when the lineup finished, all of the seven women in the audience who were each separated from her neighbor by a police officer were asked to write down the number of any of the eight men they recognize. Ted Bundy's number was number seven. So down, lineup is done. Ted was taken down to the booking area where seven weeks earlier, Sergeant Hayward had first brought him in. As time passed, he apparently got nervous and started to fidget. (laughs) Finally, John O'Connell walked in and said, well, Ted, this looks like the way it is. You've been identified. Pew, pew, motherfucking pew. We got him. We got him. We got him. Oh, snap, we got him. The bitch, the bitch was identified. He was identified. And now he's gonna go to jail for real. So yeah, he said, this is the way it is. You've been identified. Apparently Ted Bundy went numb. (laughs) Should have thought about that before you were killing people, Bundy. And he had come to the lineup with every expectation, apparently of going back to class that day. That's how confident and arrogant he was. He was like, I'm gonna go to a police lineup and then go to class. That is mental illness. (laughs) Like, why not take a bath at the very least? That sounds so stressful. Going to class. Okay. His lawyer went on to say that he still didn't know who had written the number seven on her card, which guess what? All three of the witnesses did. Carol Duranch, Raylan Shepard, and Tamara, the neighbor of Deborah Kent, or her locker neighbor, all of them identified that bitch. Also, his lawyer did not know what the police intended to charge Ted with. So moments later, Jerry Thompson walked into the room and he said that the charge was for kidnapping and attempted murder and his bail was set at $100,000. 100000 motherfucking dollars. And in 1974, let's see, how much is that? Hold on. Damn. Okay, I just checked. $100,000 in 1975 is equivalent to about $518,219.33. 500K. Fuck me, that's crazy. I mean, whatever. So Ted Bundy apparently stood impassively as Jerry Thompson read the charge. And yeah, this was it, yo. Like he got fucking caught, bitch. He got caught. So before being led away, Ted Bundy was allowed to make one phone call and he decided to call Marlon Vortman, which was apparently a wise choice because this Marlon Vortman sounds like a wealthy white man name, Marlon Vortman, or a supervillain, honestly. But this dude was probably the most able and capable person who could help Bundy in Washington state, because not only did Marlon Vortman believe that Ted Bundy was innocent, but he would give Ted Bundy like his shoulder to lean on for all things legal in terms of like the state of Washington. And Ted Bundy really needed that. And this Marlon Vortman that Ted Bundy, he perceived correctly that he was a very powerful friend who he could like count on when he was in trouble. So, and so when Ted Bundy was arrested and charged with kidnapping and attempted murder, all hell broke loose over the news. And it's crazy because like, I think Liz was told by one of the officers that like, oh yeah, like nothing's gonna happen. Like no one's gonna know anything about Ted Bundy being arrested, whatever. And the next day, shit went crazy. So Ann Rule says like that day on October 2nd, well, she was attending a baseball game, football game for her kid, whatever. So she's in the car. After the game, on the way home, she turned on the radio and she said, quote, a bulletin interrupted the record playing. So er, literal fucking record scratch. 
Theodore Robert Bundy, a former Tacoma resident, was arrested today in Salt Lake City and charged with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault. I must have gasped. My son looked at me. Mom, what's wrong? It's Ted, I managed to stammer. Isn't that your friend from the crisis clinic? Yes, he told me I might be reading about him in the papers. <laughs> this time, there was to be no quick release on PR. Ted's bail was set at $100,000 and he was locked in the county jail. Detective Dick Reed called me that night. You were right, he said. I didn't want to be right. I didn't want to be right at all. I slept little that night. Even when I suggested Ted's name to read, I hadn't really visualized him as a man capable of violence. I hadn't allowed my thinking to go that far. I kept seeing Ted as I remembered him, picturing him hunched over the crisis clinic phones, hearing his warm, sympathetic voice. I tried to picture him now behind bars and I couldn't. Did she want to fuck him? Early the next morning, I received a phone call from the Associated Press. We have a message for Anne Rule transmitted over our wires from Salt Lake City. This is Anne. Ted Bundy wants you to know that he's all right, that things will work out. I thanked him, hung up the phone, and it rang almost at once. First, a reporter from the Seattle Times, wondering what my connection was with Ted Bundy. Was I a secret girlfriend? What could I say about Ted? I explained who I was, a writer like the reporter calling. I've done several pieces for the Sunday Times Magazine. Don't you know the name? That's a bit presumptuous. Anyway, the reporter says, oh yeah, rule. Why did he send you that message over AP? He's a friend. He wanted me to know he was all right. I didn't want to be quoted by name. I was still too confused by what had happened. Just say that the man I know couldn't be responsible for any of the things he's accused of. The next call followed immediately. It was the Seattle Post Intelligencer, which had also picked up the AP message. I repeated what I told the Times reporter. It was as if someone had died suddenly. People who had known Ted from the crisis clinic were calling to talk about it, and none of us believed Ted was capable of what he'd been charged with. It was unthinkable. We kept recalling anecdotes about Ted, trying to convince each other that what we were reading and blaring headlines could not be happening. And at the time, Ann Rule didn't know that Ted Bundy had been picked out of the lineup. Like, she didn't know. She was just like, what the fuck? It's just crazy as hell. It's just crazy as hell. And then she even says, I wrote to Ted on October 4th, telling him of support from Seattle, of the calls from his friends, of the favorable statements being published in the Seattle papers, promising him that I would continue to write. I ended that letter, quote, there is nothing in this life that is a complete tragedy. Nothing. Try to remember that. Looking back, I wonder at my naivete. <laughs> Some things in this life are complete tragedies. Ted Bundy's story may well be one of them. Bitch, like, you writing a book about how you were going to the mats and in the trenches for Ted Bundy is a tragedy. I would have been like, oh, I don't know about that, but whatever. And so this is what happened. Like, when the news broke, friends and former classmates and co-workers and associates, when they heard that Ted Bundy had been arrested and charged with, like, fucking aggravated kidnapping and, like, attempted murder, they were like, what the fuck? How could this have happened to him? He is a law student, but he he goes to law school. He's a law student. You don't know how many fucking newspaper clippings, how many headlines I found that were like, it can't possibly be him because he goes to law school. Like, how are the two related? You can clearly go to fucking law school and murder people. It's so dumb that this cloak of like, I'm a lawyer or like whatever, this cloak of like affluence allows people into being willfully fucking duped into ignoring crimes. Like it's just so fucking, he was a law student, who gives a fuck. And they were like, I had a beer with him. I sat in class with him. He was so friendly. It could not possibly be him. Now look at you, stupid as hell talking to the newspapers, going to the mats and in the trenches for a fucking pedophile necrophiliac. Here's the thing. When someone's accused of some shit like that, just be like, hmm, sorry to this man and keep it pushing because nine times out of 10, if it is a cis het white dude, he did it. There's something wrong with them. Like, anyway. <laughs> so a man by the name of Stuart Elway, he campaigned with Bundy and at one time he planned to actually be roommates with Bundy and he's quoted as saying, after this, we were forced to reevaluate what we believed about our friends. Which, yeah, like your friends are not infallible. People are fucked up. And clearly you didn't know him. On October 3rd, the next day, 
the Seattle Post Intelligencer, uh, they had a whole headline that was like, is Utah Ted the Seattle Ted? So they're like starting to make connections cross country and not just the detectives speaking with each other, but now the media is starting to kind of piece together like, oh my gosh, like, is this related? His hometown newspaper, the Tacoma News Tribune, they said, some quote like taco man, I don't know what the fuck that means, but taco man, not Ted murder suspect. And they apparently quoted Captain Nick Mackey of the King County Police who said that Ted Bundy quote could not possibly be responsible for the Ted murders here. And there's like a reason behind that. Like I'll get to it later, but this is what he put out in the papers and it's, it was for a reason. But like at the end of the day, if you have brain cells, most people started to see, like, connect the fucking red string of Ted Bundy, his Volkswagen, his, like, moving to Utah, the murders, like, suddenly stopping when he moved to Utah, and then, like, in Washington, and then picking up there. Like, you know what I mean? It was just kind of like, huh, his name was Ted, and he drove a Volkswagen, and while he was here being Ted with the Volkswagen, women were dying, and then he left, and then the murder stopped. And then Ted with the Volkswagen moved to Utah, and the women also started, like, you know, popping up missing or murdered so they were like hmm and because of these connections now and especially now that they were public detective keppel and then a man named ted Fonis, who i don't know who that is they hopped on a flight went immediately to fucking utah called uh detective jerry thompson from utah and they set up a time to meet and like just discuss shit and they were like the three of them got together and they started talking in detail about ted bundy and like the cases in seattle and trying to find links and connections and apparently it was a really long but productive day for them they started sharing information of like missing persons reports and autopsy reports and just different things and like actually copying and sharing things with each other, which is like how that works. Like they weren't, it's so nice that they weren't being like cocky and like, oh, I want to catch Ted Bundy. I want to catch Ted Bundy. They were like, we all want to catch him. So let's literally work together. Cause that's like some fuck shit that happened with the Night Stalker. It was just a bunch of like, and the Golden State Killer was just a bunch of dick measuring and like he was able to, whatever. Anyway. Okay, and this is funny as hell. So in the Bundy murders, there's this little anecdote about how the detectives, when they, like the Seattle detectives, when they came to Utah, they wanted to see this infamous like fucking murder kit that was confiscated when he was arrested on August 16th. And (laughs) they weren't able to see it because it says, quote, we were told that due to their hunting season of elk and ducks, that we would probably be unable to view this as they had one evidence man and one key and he was presumably out of town. It didn't help matters that they arrived on a Saturday and had they arrived a day earlier, the evidence man would no doubt have waved at them to follow him and in short order they would have been handling those items. So just fucking crazy. And they didn't want to leave Utah without seeing Bundy's fucking murder kicks. That's a crucial piece of evidence. And they even tried like contacting other people like Captain Pete Hayward, who like arrested him and <laughs> to try to find another key to the evidence room. But he was out hunting, so they couldn't get a hold of him. High crimes, murder, kidnapping happening. And they're like, you know what? Rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, duck season. Like, <sighs> yeah. Okay, so in the book, The Deliberate Stranger by Richard Larson, he was a reporter at the Seattle Times when all of this was like fucking going down. And he's the man who knew Ted Bundy from his campaign days. And so like he, of course, being literally in the media from his perspective of like what happened when the news broke about Ted Bundy being like that dumb bitch. So he's like at work at the Seattle Times and he's like, hey, you know, a co-worker's like, we got word from police in Salt Lake City that they arrested Ted Bundy. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, are you joking? And he like remembered Ted from like 1973, two years earlier. And he was the top assistant for Ross Davis. And he was like, at all of the Republican events, like he knew him. And he said that apparently he and this guy, Ross Davis, like they often talked about Ted Bundy and thought about like what his future would be like and where he would go in the world of politics. And so he's just like, what the fuck was Bundy arrested for? Like, that's crazy as hell. So then he's talking to Davis about this. That's who told him that. And 
he said he was arrested for fucking kidnapping and attempted murder of a young girl. And they're like, come on, like, that's bullshit. Like, you're fucking joking. He's like, no, I'm dead ass serious. He's literally in jail right fucking now. So they're like talking about it and they're just like, what the fuck? Like, he drives a Volkswagen. Like, that's so crazy. So he's like, I think like we maybe need to like talk this over a little bit more. And apparently his editor, Lane Smith, filled him in on like more of the details about his bail. That was like $100,000 and all that shit. And then she goes, you know what, Richard, since you know Ted Bundy, why don't you fly over to Salt Lake City and see what's going on? Like maybe you can talk to him because she sees ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. Like he literally knows this dude. So he's like, please use your fucking connection. So he's like, oh my God, okay. So he's just like, this is crazy as hell. Okay. So the first thing that Richard Larson does when he goes to Utah is he speaks with Ted Bundy's attorney, John O'Connell, who is just like, he's he's just crazy. He's like, this whole thing has just gotten absolutely ridiculous. They're making Ted out as one of those great mass murderers of all times. I mean, girl. <laughs> so... He's just sitting in there like, what the fuck is going on? And he sees on the lawyer's desk that there's like all sorts of newspapers about like kidnapped suspect with like pictures of Ted Bundy and like just it's it's crazy. And his lawyer is apparently saying like the reporters, they're going wild. Meanwhile, there's literally a reporter in his office. Like that's who this Richard Larson guy is, dumbass. So he's in the office with Ted's attorney for Utah, John O'Connell. And then also that guy, Marlon Vortman, is there with like his other friend. Like just so a bunch of lawyers, like just circle jerking each other about like Ted Bundy. Like he couldn't possibly do it, not our boyfriend Bundy, which whatever, you know. And while he's in the office, John O'Connell began to read into the receiver some of the lower paragraphs of a lengthy Desert News article about Ted. Apparently, said O'Connell, a reporter interviewed the landlord at the apartment where Ted was living and that the landlord said, quote, The only unusual thing I ever noticed was a two foot square chopping block he had, the kind you'd find in a meat market, Mm -hmm. and the way he used shiny metal meat hooks on the ceiling to hold up his pots and pans, which I promise you he also was hanging out bodies and using that chopping block to cut off heads because he literally decapitated his victims and like had sex with their heads. So so the journalist, Richard Larson, is asking his lawyer, like, hey, like, I would really like to talk to Ted. Like, I think it could be possible. I could help him out. But his lawyer isn't, like, falling for it. He's like, no, Ted Bundy's already in the media too much. We're not letting him talk to people. But he did say that he could call Ted Bundy. Like, you can't go to the prison, but you can call him. So Richard Larson says... While I waited to make that telephone call, I considered how desperately frightened, how anguished Ted must feel at that moment. To be jailed in an unfamiliar city, to be jailed anywhere, facing an ominous criminal charge while everyone engaged in speculation about all those cruel murders. If I were in that situation, I thought, I'd be clawing the walls of the jail, screaming my innocence. My telephone call into the interview room at the jail was surprisingly quick and successful. It was startling to hear Ted's voice at the other end of the line say, Hi, Dick. How are you? Ted, I exclaimed. I was almost breathless with concern about his plight. How are you? Well, Ted responded calmly. We're just chugging right along. (laughs) There seemed to be an almost serene control, even a smile in his voice. In an instant of silence, I slowly swallowed what he said and the unusual way he'd said it. Chugging right along. Where was that scream of innocence? Dick, he added, I'm not really sure what we can talk about. You realize that I can't comment on the charges that are pending. He was precise and lawyer-like as he pointed out how his attorneys had forbidden him to discuss the case. I replied that I understood. There'd be no questions relating to the charges, I assured him. But I wanted to know how he was feeling, how he was being treated, if he had any messages to be delivered to his friends in Seattle. He replied that his jail conditions were okay. Then he added, One thing you can write, is that I really appreciate the expressions of support and offers to help I've had from all my friends up in Seattle. For a moment, I wondered how, locked away in jail, he could have received so many expressions of support. Perhaps Vortman, the Seattle attorney, had brought brought that assurance to him. One thing that concerns me, Ted's youthful voice continued, is that the news media interest in me causes harassment of my family and friends. The ground rules he had set for our conversation limited the scope of my questioning. Soon our conversation ended. I wished him luck. He sounded self-assured and we said goodbye. About a week later, after I returned to Seattle, I received from Ted an, quote, open letter to the public, which he asked to be published in the Times. I took it to Smith, my city editor, who read it, and it says, (laughs) 
This bitch is fucking unhinged. It says, I address this letter to my many friends and acquaintances who have offered their prayers, concern, and support in my behalf. When time permits, I shall do my best to reply personally to each of you. You are truly beautiful people. Your encouragement is the light at the end of the tunnel. I think of you constantly. I think of our beautiful state and the in... <laughs> And the incomparable loveliness of our Seattle, the breathtaking vistas, which are for you part of your daily life. For me, mind-woven tapestries which color the grave walls. I envy you. The law is a curious animal. <laughs> to a law student, it becomes highly abstract and impersonal. To defendant, in my position, it offers incredible new perspectives. The excesses of the system are slight in comparison to the protections it affords each of us. Defend it or not, I have great confidence in its ultimate product. Justice. God bless you, Ted Bundy. If I were in his situation, observed Smith, I think I'd be screaming my head off that the cops made a mistake. As I reread Ted's letter, I concluded it reminded me of some political speeches I'd occasionally heard from candidates or office holders who were in trouble. A salute to the system, with the implicit message that he was innocent and would eventually be cleared. I had a brief fantasy about Ted, how after all this publicity had made him a celebrity, after he proved his total innocence, he returned home and run for high office. <laughs> the delusion of a white man. And so literally like anyone and everyone who knew Ted Bundy, they're all coming out of the woodwork to be like, oh my God, I cannot believe it. So like some of his former coworkers at the Department of Emergency Services, they were like, I cannot believe this. Like one lady even said, his desk was just across from mine. He was a great friend to me at a time when I desperately needed a crutch. So this lady, she was going through a divorce and Ted Bundy apparently like guided her that summer and helped her out and he got me going again. He was the sort of person I would have quote, trusted my life with. Don't tell people that. In Salt Lake City, this Mormon missionary person was like, oh my God, he's a Mormon. I wouldn't hesitate to line him up with my sister. Like, okay, fucking relax. People were scrambling to raise money for his fucking bail as well. Cause they were like, oh my God, I feel so sorry for Ted. I can't express it. Like people were sobbing to the police. Like they really were like, I cannot believe it. Oh my fucking God. And so of course, Liz, she finds out that Bundy's been arrested. Fucking spirals, bro. Like truly, she like found out while she was at work. She was so like fucked up that her boss like looked at her and was like, are you okay? Let me take you home right the fuck down. But her boss was like, let me take you home. Instead, they go to a bar. She has some shots. Then she's like the next few days passed in a blur. And she was like drinking so much that her ex-husband, like Molly, her daughter's... <laughs> Molly, her daughter's father, and his wife like had to come and like get Molly because she wasn't staying sober, which fucking sucks. Like that sucks that she's suffering from alcoholism. But one of Ted's friends like flew to Salt Lake City to see him and came back with a letter for Liz from Ted. And it says, <clears throat> what can I say except that I love you? What can I do except want to touch you and hold you? Oh my God. What can I hope for? What can I hope for except to hope that someday we can be together forever? I can never hope to compensate for the sorrow and anguish I've caused you. This is what hurts me most. Be strong. And as I am sure you have done, protect Molly from all this. If it's not already too late, I love you more and more. Forever and ever. This I know true. God love you and be with you. Like, okay. Also, she wasn't protecting Molly from shit. She told Molly straight up. It was like, yo, Ted's been fucking arrested for murder and kidnapping. Also, her kid was like nine years old. So that must have been a real treat. So like, whatever, no one can believe it. Everyone's freaking out. People are like, what is this poor mother going through? Ah, whatever, who literally gives a single shit? But Ted Bundy, while he was in prison, he like, as a narcissist, as a psychopath, was thriving with all the attention. And he got really um prolific and he got really, um you know, he became a poet. So he started like dead ass sending fucking Anne Rule poems from prison. She says like, for example, she got a letter from him in prison that quote, the poem rambled over both sides of 16 pages, 16 pages, two-sided. He called this poem, Nights of Days. There is no way to be, man ought to be free. 
that man should be me. <laughs> oh my God, my dopamine levels are surging. You got shitty fucking poems from Ted Bundy. Another one. Sleep comes slowly. Read the words of the holy. The scriptures bring peace. They talk of release. They bring us to God. And here, that seems odd, but his gift is so clear. I find that he's near. Mercy and redemption, without an exception. He put me at ease. Jailer, do what you please. No harm can befall me when the Savior does call me. Okay, Mimi's scrambling. She can't take the poems. Okay, just a few more. It makes me feel blue. Taking food from the animals in the zoo. Pork chops tonight. Jews are uptight. Okay. I gave mine away. It still has a tail. Doesn't rhyme. And as for dessert, the cook, that old flirt, surprised us with mellow peach jello. <laughs> Some really believe they were born to deceive, to make a bank roll from the money they stole. They do not relate to going in straight, except when in court, they sometimes resort to making a plea for a new life in leniency. Lastly, Days of days, self-control pays, don't lose your mind, panic's not kind, days of days, my integrity stays. Bro, 16, 16 fucking pages of this. And Anne Rule's like in the trenches, going to bat for this bitch, going to all her fucking like cop friends. I'm like, it cannot possibly be him. She was sending him money in prison for like cigarettes and shit and like for things to get in the canteen, like literally sending him her coin. And so finally someone asked her and they were like, let me ask you a question. If Ted Bundy proves to be a murderer, if he is sent to prison for the rest of his life, what are you going to do? Would you stop writing to him? Would you drop him? And Rule says, that answer was easy. No. No, I would always write to him. If what the detectives believe is true, if he is guilty, then he needs someone. If he had that on his conscience, no, I would keep writing, keep in touch. I don't understand that because bestie, if you tell me you killed someone, unless this is Chicago, he had it coming, he had it coming, he only had himself to blame moment. Bestie, we're losing touch because if you're a fucking pedophile serial rapist and murderer, I hope you literally get your shit rocked in prison every day. That's what I'm saying. So also I wouldn't want him to have my fucking address. Like it's so crazy. It's so crazy to me. So Richard Larson, who is the reporter who works for the Seattle Times, right? Yes, the Seattle or the Times. And he has the book, the... <laughs> He has the book, The Deliberate Stranger. He and his coworker, Paul Henderson, they interviewed Ted Bundy's parents, like his mom, Louise, and his stepdad, Johnny, to say like, oh my God, he was fucking arrested. Like, what are you, what, what's going on? So he writes, Louise Bundy greeted us at the door with a pleasant smile. She was a tiny woman with light brown hair and light blue eyes. So she was like small, bird-like. And Johnny Bundy was described as having a shy smile, was mostly bald, with dark rimmed glasses, and he was not much taller than Louise. So Louise told Richard Larson how Ted was always just the best son in the world. And she like randomly and weirdly said that she would always wonder if he remembered Mother's Day or not, because he was just so busy. You know, I hope he remembers, but he always would show up with some sort of a plant or a gift. Just weird. Like her kid is accused of fucking attempted murder and kidnapping. And she's like, but he always remembered Mother's Day. Like, okay. She also said, when Governor Evans grew a beard, why, of course, Ted grew a beard too. He really liked politics. She's talking about when he worked on the campaign for Governor Evans and like when this man grew a beard, he was like, me too. Whatever, the living room was neat and tidy. There was a case with ceramics in it and shit that she had like fucking collected, like whatever. But one thing that Richard Larson was shocked by is that the house was like, he expected it to be more grandiose and bigger and more lavish because of, that's how Ted Bundy always pretended to be. Like he pretended to be this rich bitch. So he was just like, oh, like, okay, well this nigga actually is just normal as hell. So the entire time that Richard Larson spoke to Ted's mom, Louise, his stepdad, Johnny Bundy, just like listened in the corner and like sat passively and didn't say anything. Like he was just sitting in the corner and it was clear like Louise was in charge of the household, which if you look at Ted Bundy's chart, 
his fourth house of the home and the mother is chaotic. And if you rotate that chart to be like to represent his mom, it's insane. So he also says, Henderson and I turned the conversation as gently as possible toward the tender question of the murdered young woman and the police suspicions of Ted. Louise's smile remained on her lips, but abruptly her eyes cooled. Well, I just know my son, she began, and I know he could never do any harm to anyone. So Louise's face was rigid with determination. And apparently, okay, this is fucking creepy. She remembered this one instance in 1974 and the news was like going off about all these girls disappearing and like turning up dead. And Ted Bundy was visiting home one evening and he noticed that his younger sister, Sandra, was getting ready to go out on a date. And Louise says, and Ted said to me, you know, mom, she looks like all those other girls. Her hair was kind of long and parted in the middle. She was 19 at the time. And Ted Bundy said to his mother, mom, I hope you know where she's going and who she's with. He was always very protective of her. What the fuck? Like literally what the fuck? So before the creepy ass interview, Richard Larson appealed to Louise Bundy in an effort to try to like clear Ted Bundy's name. And he was like, Mrs. Bundy, you know, there's all these dates of when all these girls disappeared. If there's any way you can by thinking to come up with any date, any date at all that Ted Bundy could have been here with you or anywhere else or with anyone else, just some date to put Ted Bundy somewhere other than nowhere, please let us know and we'll go after it. And Ted's mother, quote, quietly directly returned my gaze she said nothing i thought i sensed a nod of understanding behind her look but she had no suggestion to offer like she couldn't even say anything so they fucking leave her house uh richard larson and his partner henderson they're driving away and he started to think about how his mom seemed like mechanical in her responses and it appeared as if she had rehearsed really carefully the memories like the specific memories she wanted to relate like, oh yeah, Mother's Day. And he said, Paul, I get a little feeling talking to her that Ted's mother has had a bone deep feeling for some time that her son might not be the all-American boy. <laughs> like, okay. And so like a few weeks go by and Detective Thompson in The Riverman, he recalls that on October 15th, 1975, after Ted Bundy was arrested, they actually had a break in the case and it was like honestly a fucking stroke of luck because Ted Bunny was like cleaning the shit out of his car. Like he was constantly seen cleaning it, like he sold it and the cops got a hold of his car even though he sold it and they found on the stick shift lever of his Volkswagen wrapped around it, graphic, a pubic hair from the Utah murder victim, Melissa Smith, police chief Smith's daughter, and in the trunk of the Volkswagen, the police located and forensics identified a hair from the head of Colorado murder victim, Karen Campbell. Like, and who knows how many other fucking clues had been scrubbed away because he was super fucking meticulous. But like, they found her hair in the trunk of the car, Karen Campbell and like Melissa's like, come on. And the only living witness, Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth, right? Meanwhile, Bob Keppel in Seattle had turned up a number of coincidences. Ted, it turned out, had once dated Herb Swindler's daughter. And if you remember, that was like the police officer, the captain's daughter. And she saw Ted Bundy like biking away from one of the crime scenes after he like went and collected evidence. And his cousin, Edna Cowell, knew Linda Ann Healy. And Ted was enrolled in, I think like a couple of Linda Healy's psychology classes. I think three of them. So he had like literally had classes with one of the victims. And Detective Keppel in The Riverman writes... Three months into our investigation of Ted Bundy, we had encountered nothing in Ted's history or pattern of his whereabouts that would have derailed our efforts, so the case was still on track. We were working 16-hour days following every lead and tip that had been compiled. There was nothing we turned up that eliminated him from consideration. For every one of his friends who had only laudatory things to say about Ted, we found three acquaintances who questioned his every move. So, Yes, the net is fucking closing on this bitch. So while Ted was dealing with like the news and the media and police in Utah, the detectives in Seattle, they were playing it cool. Captain Nick Mackey, he was saying on record, that's why he dismissed Ted Bundy's being a suspect in the Seattle cases. 
because until they officially named him, they didn't want anything in the news because they didn't want to blow the case. They wanted to tie up all the loose ends. And if he had mentioned that Ted Bundy was a suspect, Ted Bundy might have gotten like a little bit more defensive and the Seattle police officers would have had a more difficult time investigating him. Detective Keppel writes, We needed an overconfident Ted, not a defensive Ted, because overconfidence breeds mistakes. And that's just what we needed our Ted to make in order to catch him. As it turned out, disinformation is probably the best way to lure a serial killer out into the open because serial killers carefully read the newspaper accounts of their crimes. Going public with our suspicions about Bundy would have focused media attention on us. And we would have had to feed the media constantly to keep their hunger for news satisfied. And that would have then tipped Ted Bundy off to what leads we had and where we were getting them from. Even more important, I was to find out years later, was that our reluctance to pursue Ted Bundy aggressively in the first weeks after he was picked out of that lineup had inadvertently established a deep level of trust with Ted Bundy that would remain with us until his execution took place in Florida. So it's all going apart in the plan. And Detective Keppel even like finally waited a while before he contacted Ted Bundy's attorney, John O'Connell. And when he spoke to him, he wanted to know if Ted Bundy had an alibi for any of the times when the victims went missing. And he was like, oh, I understand your request. Like, please write a letter with the important dates. And maybe Ted could, you know, intelligently reply, which like, okay, whatever the fuck that means. So he did just that. He sent Ted Bundy a letter and was like, hey, girl, here are the dates and times you requested you know, pocket king, let's make you feel special. And a month went by, no response. So finally, Detective Keppel called the lawyer again. It was like, excuse me, did you get my fucking letter? Did Ted have an alibi for any of the dates? And his lawyer said, he can't. And he goes, what do you mean he can't? Like he didn't do anything or he couldn't give me an answer for those dates. And his lawyer said, he just can't answer your questions about those days. Which, what the fuck? And Detective Keppel even said like he could tell by how John O'Connell was responding and then listening to him later on interviews on TV that he thought this lawyer risked becoming, quote, one of Ted's many psychological victims, people who wanted to believe what Ted was saying, even though they had doubts about his story. Like, come fucking on, bro. So Ted Bundy spent like some weeks in jail and eventually his bail was reduced from $100,000 to $15,000 and his family was like just barely able to cover that bail. So he made fucking bail. Apparently though, one obstacle to his release was the unwillingness of the local bondsmen to accept like such a notorious alleged killer as Ted Bundy because their fear was that if he got out and committed another murder that they would be held responsible, which like no fucking shit. The police and Ted Bundy's friends feared for his safety if he was released because he received several anonymous death threats. (laughs) But apparently he was more like, Ted Bundy was more concerned about being in prison because people in prison started calling him like a baby raper which like he was a child rapist. And so they were about to get his ass, which I don't even know how that rumor started in prison because at the time, like, I don't think anyone knew. It was just like, oh, he's killed these co-eds. He's like, you know, college students. So I don't fucking know, but I wish they would have got him. So also apparently there was some sort of Ted Bundy defense fund that was established and almost immediately, like overnight, over $4,000 was raised what and some of the major contributors were that marlon vortman guy and his wife sheila (laughs) and ted bundy recounted to the authors of the only living witness that the night of his release was just before thanksgiving of 1975 and he went like grocery shopping at the supermarket with his mom and johnny his stepdad and apparently he became violently ill he was like nauseous had heat flashes fear and like this attack lasted for an hour. The next day, however, they say his composure regained. He went to court for a routine hearing to determine if he should be bound over for trial. Tucked conspicuously under his arm was a copy of Alexander, sorry to this man's name, the Gulag Archipelagio, that he opened and read at the defense table. Ted meant the volume to suggest parallels of oppression and his own martyrdom. Like, okay. During courtroom breaks that day, Ted mingled with reporters in the hallway. He told them he had been treated well 
by the guards in jail. And the other county prisoners, oh yeah, quote, once you get underneath their exterior, they're all real nice people. Sure. He also said to another group of journalists, we want everything out in the open. I like to see this thing fully aired. Several news stories and newspapers described Ted Bundy as being pale, shaky, but jovial. And apparently he later told the author of this book that he was, quote, I was trying to project an image. I was feeling proud of myself. That's when I started to be pleased about fucking with the press. From then on, it was a lot of fun. (sighs) And then you know what he does once he made bail? He got on a fucking plane and flew to Seattle. He's on bail for aggravated kidnapping and attempted murder. And they allowed him to get on a fucking plane. It's the white privilege of it all. Yeah, everything sucks. Pew, 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 pew. We did it. End of episode 14, but he's a law student. So yeah, as you can see, Ted Bundy had pretty much everyone duped into believing he was you know, not crazy. And it gets even more insane next week when he gets on a fucking plane and is just YOLOing in Seattle as if nothing happened. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you like True Crime Aficionados, please share this episode or share the podcast in general with a friend. There are over 10 full episodes to binge at this moment. You can head over to the website, truecrimeaficionados.com. It's a party on Instagram at True Crime Aficionados. Follow there for memes and pictures of my cat Mimi, updates on the episode. It's great. Also, please go support me on Patreon because this is a one black queer woman show. So I'd appreciate some support in these hard times. And if you have any comments or questions or, you know, if your mom was like, oh, I know about Ted Bundy or whatever the fuck, you know, please send an email truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. Otherwise, please stay tuned as always for some purrs, some cleansing purrs from my cat Mimi. And remember, keep your head on the motherfucking swivel. (laughs) Bye. Okay, bye.